0: Well, good morning. It's it's fun to look around and to hear people say that back. These are all just really fun things. It feels like we've been in a little closet by ourselves for a while. Well, this morning we are excited to introduce to you a new sermon series that we are beginning. God's story, our story, my story. The selection of verses we will be preaching on each week come to us from the Luther Seminary who put together the narrative lectionary. This was something that they did about 10 years ago as an opportunity for churches to go through with congregations so that the whole story of God would be told. And we are truly starting from the very beginning. So we look forward to stepping into this series for this season and learning different aspects from God's story that to some of us may be familiar, but to others of us may be new. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Genesis, or Genius, as Scrappy likes to call it. I'll be reading from the New International Version. These are select verses verses from chapters 2 and 3 from Genesis. For those of you who would like to follow along in your Bibles, it's Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 through 7, 15 through 17, and then chapter 3, verse 1 through 8. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth. And there was no one to work the ground, but the streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for the food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of Ben's mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and salvation. Amen.
1: Well, good morning, church. Um, It's actually kind of nice to have this little plexiglass here. Because I feel like if I start bombing and you want to start chucking tomatoes or things at me, I got, I got a nice little shield. So I can kind of go off the rails here and feel pretty comfortable. And if you're at home on, on the computer or something like that, what are you going to do? Not like my sermon on Facebook? Oh, no. Right? I'm feeling kind of frisky. So watch out. To be fair, though, if you read in the New Testament, Jesus' first sermon in the synagogue, they drive him out. So, I mean, I'm not, I'd be in good company if you all did that. So, yeah. But in, the, in, in preparation for this morning, uh, I actually put on my, uh, my Adam and Eve socks, which I imagine none of you could actually see other than the fact that I'm just lifting up my leg up. That makes my story a little less impressive, but you'll have to trust me on that. Um, good morning though, I am Ben Steele, and I am the father of Mary and Anna, the husband of Elise, the brother of Adam, and the son of Barry and Julie. I'm about five foot nine and 175 pounds. Currently, I'm a part-time school teacher and a full-time doctorate student. I like wrestling, the Seahawks, the Lord of the Rings, and I really like cooking, especially barbecuing. Some of my favorite movies include Star Wars, the original one, Batman Begins, and The Matrix. Why am I telling you all these facts about myself? And what do these movies have in common? Well, let's address the second one first, actually. My, these movies I just mentioned, yes, they're all action and adventure type movies, but more than that, they're origin stories. They introduce us to characters and worlds, and as these characters grow to learn about who they truly are, they also develop purpose. Whether that purpose is to fight bad guys in Gotham, fight, and, fight off an evil Uh, robot empire or confront and save the galaxy, they all have purposes. We get to learn about their strengths and weaknesses. And you see, this passage this morning is an origin story of sorts as well. It's our creation account. It operates in a similar way. You see, creation stories fundamentally do two things. They tell us who we are, and they tell us what we're for. They give us identity, and they give us purpose. Now, our scripture actually gives two accounts of an origin story or, or creation accounts. Genesis 1, which obviously comes before Genesis chapter 2, which we didn't read too much about, and then in Genesis chapters 2 and moving into chapter 3. Now, interestingly, even though in the scripture itself, Genesis 1 comes before Genesis chapter 2, most biblical scholars think that Genesis 2 is the older of the two stories. But why is it important that the Israel, uh, the nation of Israel, would have a creation account? Why would it be so important for them to know and tell these stories? Well, it is understood that the biblical account of creation is not the only creation story out there. In fact, if you go back and look at ancient cultures and kingdoms, every one of them would have some kind of creation account, some kind of story. Some of you might be familiar with some of them, such as the the Greek gods and goddesses. The Greek origin story, although it varies from, from time and place, essentially starts with the god chaos, this kind of gaping openness of nothingness, out of which the underworld, the earth, and Eros love spring forth. From there, various forces and gods and titans and goddesses come about. And it is from there that we get a creation story. Or, perhaps more familiar to the ancient Israelites, they would have known about an account from the Babylonians. A god called Marduk and a goddess, Tiamat, have a cosmic battle. Marduk uses magic and the four winds to defeat Tiamat. He slays her, cuts her in two, and her upper half becomes the, the sky and the heavens, and the lower half falls and forms the earth. There are all kinds of ways to tell creation stories, and when we tell those creation stories, it reflects what we believe is fundamental to reality. It tells us who we are and what we're for. Now what's interesting is most of the other creation stories and accounts in the ancient world have something to do with violence, oftentimes sex, treachery, There's all kinds of nasty ways that the world and the universe come about. Think about the the Greek story I just told you. What is primary and fundamental to reality? It's chaos. That's what's at the heart of reality. Now, the biblical claim and the origin stories that the Israelites write down and proclaim is something very much different. It tells of a God who is sovereign. There are no competitors. There's no other gods or goddesses that God has to slay or trick or coax into working with him. He is alone. God is God. But make no mistake, there is intention to this in creation story and it is to rebut many of the other creation accounts that the Israelites would have encountered. These, these accounts, and far as they talk about humans, oftentimes these, these accounts bring up things like the gods being too lazy to do their own work, so they form humans to do their work for them. Other accounts talk about God, God's doing things and a kind of a byproduct, an accident, is that humans sprout up. What we see in the text in the scripture is that we're not an accident and that we're not there just to do God's work because he's too lazy or he's too bored. We see that... These texts primarily tell us about who we are and what we're for because origin stories and creation stories are primarily theological accounts. Make no mistake, though, these origin stories are not something that are just for pre-scientific people trying to give scientific or pre-scientific explanations for something that ultimately science can answer for us. It's not as if now that we have science and understanding of physics and chemistry and things like that, we don't need creation stories. That's not what they're trying to do, and that's not what this text is about. This text is a a claim about theology. It speaks to us about who God is and who we are. So we still tell ourselves origin stories today. Perhaps origin stories about the birth of our country. Perhaps you as a family have a family history origin story. We continue to tell ourselves origin stories because they tell us who we are. Well, what exactly is it that our origin story tells us about us? To begin, we notice that if you were to go back and read Genesis chapter 1, there are some similarities and there are some differences in the way these accounts come about. And I think there's a richness and robustness that both texts illuminate into who we are and what we're for. Genesis 1, as Scrappy kind of reiterated in his scrappy way, tells us of a cosmic perspective. There's a rhythm and an order to God's creation. There is evening and there is morning. was evening and there is morning. morning. God creates the light. God creates the land and the sea. God separates. It comes about rhythmically. Chapter 2 is much more narrative driven. It focuses primarily on God and God's relationship to the human, the Adam. God gives the Adam work and commands him to do, do things and he is in relationship with him. We go back on a closer reading of chapter 1, but you also notice some differences. As read this morning in Genesis chapter 2, it says that there was essentially a desolate wasteland. There's no trees, there's no bushes, nothing has sprouted up because there was no rain. God forms the man out of the dirt. In Genesis chapter 1, we actually see that plants come about on day 4. And it's not in Genesis chapter 2 until after Adam is placed in the garden and he is pro- proclaimed alone, which is not good, that the, that the animals come about. Genesis chapter 1 actually tells us that those animals come about on days 5 and 6 primarily. So the author or the authors, whoever they may be, did they not realize that there were these differences? I don't think it was that they didn't do a close reading of the text or they didn't know one another or the the other story. But the reality is they're trying to tell or illuminate different theological truths. Chapter 1 builds in a climax to day 6. The final thing that God creates is human beings. The culmination, the pinnacle of creation is us, made in God's image. Chapter 2 highlights the relationship and partnership with which God works with humans placing us in the garden to work with him to build it up. These are not by accident. One of the interesting interesting things that both of them highlight, though, is that this creation story is a creation account for all of humanity. Most creation accounts in the ancient world were about a specific people group or a specific kingdom or a tribe. There There is no highlighting of the Israelite people group until Genesis chapter 12. The, the, primary, the beginnings of the, of the book of Genesis and the beginnings of the Israelite story is actually a human story. Genesis 2 gives us a better understanding of who we are as a people, all of us, wherever you come from, whatever language you speak, in so much as God forms the Adam from the dirt. Now, if you've ever been curious, wh- where did that name Adam come from? How come he got that name Adam? Thanks for asking what we see in the Hebrew text is that the, the reason that we get the name the Adam, which actually isn't even a proper name to begin with, it just means human, is because he is formed from the Adama. The Hebrew word for dirt here, or soil, is Adama. And so it is from the Adama that God forms and makes the Adam, the human, right? The representative of us, of us all. He takes us from the dirt giving us part of our identity, and then elevates us into highest position of relationship with him, to work with him, eventually to name the animals, and to grow and care for the garden. It's a curious thing for God to do, though. He's clearly powerful enough to create all of the world. He's not too busy to do other things. Why would he give the humans this responsibility? Why tell Adam, and by extension Eve, his wife, to go and work the garden? Certainly God could have done it better than them. And God knows that just a chapter later, they screw it up. God puts this tree in the garden, which they're going to eventually rebel and sin with. What's God doing there? Is he setting us up for failure? Let's think about this a little bit more deeply, though. We already have a claim that we are made by God from the dirt. That God elevates us into relationship and partnership with him. And that he extends an amount of trust to us. It's an interesting kind of thought experiment. What do you think the Garden of Eden would have looked like if they hadn't sinned? What would the world look like now if we had, as a, as a race, chosen not to eat from the, the tree of the, the knowledge of good and evil. My belief is that God gave Adam and Eve the authority to work the garden, as we see kind of more explicitly in Genesis chapter 1, where he, God says to have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and all the creepy things that creep along the earth. But that we were to use our capacities to grow and extend the Garden of Eden. I don't believe that the Garden of Eden was supposed to stay like a museum, pristine, if there were 12 banana trees in the Garden of Eden. I don't think God wants to just maintain those 12 banana trees. I think those were supposed to grow and expand and Adam and Eve and their offspring were supposed to creatively extend the rain regions of the garden and the orderliness of it throughout the world. God is a God who creates because he is first overly abundant with goodness. And he wants to share that goodness with us. The command was not to keep the garden just as it was, but to allow us to explore and learn and be creative to fulfill the highest capacities of human concepts. And you see that the concept of work is not initially supposed to be toilsome It's not a burden. It's not a curse. It's actually for our benefit. It's for our good. Everything God does, God does is good, including giving us work. This is a very generous thing to do, for God to extend this kind of relationship, this partnership with us. This is something you do not see in the other ancient creation accounts. God's not willing to—those gods and goddesses are not willing to work with humans and acknowledge our goodness— Maybe the king who represents gods. But the rest of them, servants, slaves. They're supposed to do the God's bidding. And while we have this kind of ideal, picturesque uh, concept of of what we were supposed to be doing, we ultimately know that that doesn't last long. Who knows how long it is between Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. We don't know how long it was that Adam and Eve actually were working in the garden, keeping it, caring for it the way they ought to before they choose to sin. At some point, the serpent convinces Eve and Adam to break the one rule. Adam, you had one job. One job, Adam. Come on. But that leads to the question, why? Why would God put this, who's supposedly good and generous, put this tree in a place in the garden where he knew we were going to fail? Now, some might automatically respond with free choice. We have to have free choice. That might be part of it. That might be part of it. But I think there's more to it than that. Remember, everything God does, God does is good. Old Testament scholar Jim Breckner argues that the tree was put there, in fact, as an act of worship. Think about it. Insofar as Adam and Eve restrain from eating from the fruit. They do what everyone does in worship. What is worship about? Acknowledging that God is God, and I am not. When they walk by the tree and say, that fruit is not for me, they acknowledge that God has established certain boundaries and rules, and insofar as I live by those, that is good for me. I walk by and I say, not today, that's not for me. God is God and I am not. That's an act of worship. God gives them the opportunity to worship. And it's only through our own failings that we twist that. When we choose to break that boundary, we forget who we are. We forget the fact that we're not autonomous, that we don't make up the rules for our own lives of what is good and what is not they forgot the primary thing of the origin story. They forgot who they were. But they chose to live autonomously and break break the boundary. And the lie they bought into was essentially that God was holding out on them. That there was a better way to live outside of God's established way. The serpent then promises them a better reality than what God has offered And the fruit then, as all temptation does, promises what it can't deliver. It promises a better reality outside of the ways of God. And it can't deliver it. It simply can't. It might appear that it can, but it's an illusion. It won't last long. When we act as if we can establish what is good for ourselves, we stop trusting God. We forget who we are. Remember that the man and his wife were made by God to work and to keep the garden. Rather than entertaining this conversation with a serpent, they should have started chucking rocks at it and driven it out of the garden. Get out of here, you serpent! I have none of you. They failed to protect the garden from this threat. And in the process, they forgot who they were and what they're for. And this leads to both shame and fear as they hide from one another. The text says that they cover themselves. And I take this to be that now Adam and Eve no longer trust one another. They're no longer to be able to be honest and open and vulnerable with one another. They have to hold something back. They have to hide. And then they hide from God, breaking that relationship as well. But even in the midst of this tragic downfall, this negative turn, there is still good news. For we end the story this way. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Going just one verse further, because I couldn't help myself. Verse 9 says, "But But the Lord God called out to the man, Where are you? You see this right here, God walking in the cool of the day and calling out to the man, where are you? As they are hiding the man and his wife. This, this is the seed of the gospel. This is the first inkling of the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, while humanity continues to choose to identify themselves as individuals who can choose what's right for them, as the, even in the midst of distrust and shame, God comes seeking after the man and his wife. He comes to restore that relationship. Even when we neglect our duties, God comes seeking after you and me. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. God does not sit back and wait for us to approach him, to get our acts together. God comes and seeking... God comes and seeks after us, calling us to be put back into right relationship with Himself. First in the garden, then through the nation of Israel, and finally in the work and life of Jesus Christ. Christ comes to reveal and to remind us who we are, and to restore the relationships that were broken, so that we can once again become who we were made to be and live in accordance with what we're for. May this week we be rooted in our identity in God. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, live as he has called us to. Amen.